uh, turning there, I uh, do want to uh, remind us, and for those who are new, uh, that we are in our 75th week uh, in the book of Romans. Some uh, might gasp at that uh, number and think, oh my goodness, that's a lot of sermons for the first uh, half of Romans. Um, but I'm here to tell you that actually it's not. It's not even close. Uh, I was working out a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening to one of my uh, heroes, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, preach on a text that I had uh, preached on the previous week, and I think it was uh, one of about 10 or 11 sermons he had preached on the one passage that I had preached on the week before, uh, and he introduced his sermon this way. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, this will be my 176th exposition here in the book of Romans thus far. So I thought, wow, okay. Uh, we're actually moving at a snail's pace here. Uh, uh, but I, I hope that you've been encouraged. Um, I, I know I have. I, in fact, am just bursting to preach my message this morning because of the, the comfort and the, the grace that comes to us from this uh, marvelous text in verses 26 and 27. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, life-giving authoritative and efficacious word. Romans 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father, as we come to uh, what is uh, somewhat of a mysterious passage, a challenging text, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it and to apply it, and ultimately that we would find our hope and our consolation and the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John 14, 1. So spoke our Lord Jesus to his disciples in the upper room not long before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Surely, as he said these words to his disciples, he saw fear in their eyes. Surely, he read the uncertainty of their hearts. What would become of us, they must have thought, in a world that hates the truth, in a world that has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they must have nervously wondered, how will the church survive in the context in which we live? How will we survive when the world has gone mad and when the whole world is against us? Beloved, these are not only the anxious musings of the first disciples or of Christians in the early church. They are the fearful thoughts that arise in the hearts of Christians in every generation, and not least in our own. Perhaps these fearful thoughts have entered your own hearts in recent 
weeks and months. If that's the case, you are not alone. You don't have to be a sociologist to see that our culture is in a steep moral decline. It doesn't help to ignore that. Uh, We can choose to not watch the news, which is actually probably a good idea these days. You can choose to not watch it, but it's still there. And all of these things are still happening. You don't have to be a sociologist to see that our culture is in steep moral decline. Our society is aggressively unmooring itself from its Christian foundations, celebrating what was once condemned and condemning what was once celebrated. Over the past year, I've observed more and more open and public hostility against Christians than ever before. Perhaps you have seen it too. One glaring example, of course, is that after three precious children and three highly respected faculty members at the Covenant Christian School in Nashville were brutally murdered by a deranged transgender, almost no attention was given by the federal government or the media to the fact that this individual was intentionally targeting Christians. No word about it at all. Moreover, many either insinuated or flat out asserted, I heard it with my own ears on several occasions, that the church and her teachings were to blame for this occasion and for what happened. Indeed, I even heard a pastor on a major news network say that any Christian who disagreed with the transgender movement was actually possessed by the spirit of the Antichrist. I took that personally, of course. Dear ones, what was once called good is now called evil, and what was once called evil is now called good. Carl Truman was almost prophetic 10, 15 years ago when he wrote that this movement would make cultural exiles of Christians in the future. And we see this happening as it's overtaking institution after institution and filling the minds of people everywhere. Now, I don't raise these points because we are righteous and everyone else out there are sinners. No, we are all sinners and we all need the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Amen? All of us. My point is that our present context is rapidly changing. And in the face of our increasingly degenerate culture, it's easy, isn't it, to let fear colonize our hearts and our minds. With things crumbling in the world around us or perhaps inside us, we can begin to think that God is not at work, that he's no longer around that he's left us to our own resources, that God has already done what he's going to do, and now it is up to us to find the strength to carry on. We wonder, like the disciples perhaps wondered in the upper room, what will become of us? The disciples must have struggled with these thoughts 
How would they maintain their faith in the world so bent on destroying it? How would they be faithful in their witness when the religious elite and the pagan Gentiles and authorities were so devoted to silencing them? How would they persevere without Christ being presently, physically with them in the future? Well, Jesus gave the answer. Jesus gave the answer in John 14 and John 16. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus explains that he will ask the Father and he will give them another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And listen to this. And he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit will be sent into the world and he will not only be with you, but he will be in you, in your heart. Later in the Upper Room Discourse, in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus states that it is to their advantage that he goes away. For, he says, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Here we are reminded that Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to the Father. And the Father then exalted the Son. And together, as we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to indwell his people. Therefore, Christ's disciples are never on their own. Let me say that again. Christ's disciples are never on their own. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. This is our confidence in a world that is looking more and more like the one that the disciples were living in, who are hearing these words in context being applied for the first time. They have been said countless times thereafter throughout the last 2,000 years, but they've never lost their truth. The context may be a little different, but the truth is still the same. Christ's disciples are never on their own. Christ's disciples will never have to reply, excuse me, rely on their own strength and wisdom. We will never have to rely on our own strength and wisdom. Christ's disciples will never have to depend upon their own spiritual resources to walk with God and to be his faithful witnesses in the world. In a world that's gone mad. No, the Spirit of God, the, the Helper, the Parakletos, will be with them. And not only with them, but in them. And so we need to let this sink in this morning. As we think about the world in which we live, a world that's changing rapidly all around us. That the Holy Spirit, the, the Helper, the Comforter, the third person of the Holy Trinity is not only with us, Christ Church, He is in us. He is in us. We are not alone. He is in us. Therefore, we need not to live in fear in the context of the world in which we live. Paul certainly makes this point in Romans 8 as he speaks to the suffering and persecuted believers in Rome. Indeed, he refers to the Holy Spirit in the first 30 verses of this chapter, no less than 20 times. I counted yesterday. I, 
I can't count very well, so maybe I'm off on that. But I think it's about 20 times, as I counted yesterday, that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Uh, as by way of overview, Paul writes that God's people were, were made alive by the law of the Spirit of life, verse 2. That they walk according to the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, verses 4 and 14. He teaches that God's people are indwelt by the spirit of adoption and through the spirit are adopted sons who cry out, Abba, Father, verse 15. Later in verse 23, he explains that the spirit is the first fruits or the down payment of our future inheritance and glory. Beloved, again and again and again in this chapter, we are taught that the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, plays an active and central role in our lives, in our sanctification, and in the preparing and preserving us for heaven. Don't you love the old hymns? The one we sang earlier, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And and in that beautiful, I think it's the fourth verse, talks about when we're taking that fleeting breath and we're about to close our eyes in death. We know that it's not our own works to save us, but the works of Christ. You see, Christ saved us, sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, and He is sanctifying us and preparing us for future glory. That is our hope. Not in our own performance, but in the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in us. This is our sure hope. Paul is picking up on this same theme in verses 26 and 27. This time in connection with the Spirit's help, notice in the text, the Spirit's help in our weakness, especially as it relates to prayer. And that's where we pick up again in Paul's epistle. If you're taking notes this morning, there are three clear points that emerge from these two verses. I'm sure there are more we could come up with, but these are three clear points that I saw in this text, number one, Christians experience weakness. Christians experience weakness. Number two, the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. And three, the Father, and this is good news, the Father always says yes to the Spirit's prayers for us. The Father always says yes to the Spirit's prayers for us. Number one, Christians experience weakness. Look with me again at the first part of verse 26. Paul writes there, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness. It's those last three words, in our weakness, that I want us to to plant the flag in here for a few moments. Because they are vital to our understanding of this section and to understanding the Christian life. Every spirit-filled believer admits their inherent weakness. Immature Christians do not admit their weakness. Every spirit-filled believer admits their inherent weakness. Mature Christians are aware of their frailties and endless limitations. First, we have physical weaknesses. 
evidenced by our regular illnesses and injuries and aches and pains and breakdown of our bodies and finally in death. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.24, For all flesh is like grass and all the glory, of, uh, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. We are like grass. In light of eternity, we are here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives are but a vapor. We are mortal and weak. We are but dust. From the day we are born, we are moving day by day towards death. This is the weakness that every human being possesses. Yes, of course, including Christians. We have this weakness, this physical weakness. Indeed, we have mental and emotional weakness. And oftentimes, physical weakness leads to mental and emotional weakness. About a week and a half ago, I began to have a terrible toothache. That's brutal. Uh, There will be no toothaches in heaven. Praise God. And I was coming to a crisis point, so I called the dentist and went in there. I had just been to the dentist a couple weeks before, and he took all the the x-rays and everything looked fine. And uh, so they were surprised to hear I had this problem. And so I, I went in, they took more pictures and they looked at the pictures and said, we, we see nothing. Maybe you have an, just an active nerve that's just giving you problems. I'm like, oh my goodness, really? So he gave me some instructions and for two days I followed those instructions and it just kept getting worse. And it impacted me mentally and emotionally. I had all this, all this preparation to do and my tooth is killing me. By the grace of God, uh, it, it, it has, pain's gone away. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But that's, that's what we have in this life. We are weak physically. We are weak emotionally. We get overwhelmed. We get burdened. We get weighed down by life's circumstances with our inner spiritual battles. Thus, we struggle with anxiety and, and, and depression and burnout. We wrestle with worry. We are exhorted to take our anxious thoughts captive, but it's, it's often, if we are honest, our anxious thoughts which take us captive. Causing emotional stress. We are often like the psalmist in Psalm 77, 4, who declared, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Have you felt this way recently? I have to tell you, I have to confess to you, I have felt this way in recent weeks and months. The news around us is so devastating and wild and Orwellian, past Orwellian, the madness happening. And, and I feel the, the, the weight of all of this, even as I seek to preach and teach and write and, 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 and understand what exactly to communicate as our culture crumbles into lunacy and absurdity. So, dear ones, we are weak physically, we are weak mentally and emotionally, and we are weak spiritually. Christians endeavor to yield to the Spirit, but too often give in to the flesh. Christians want to trust in God's promises, but often find themselves doubting them. Believers want to be spiritually strong, but often find themselves weak and unsure of what to pray. Is this your experience? Do you know and feel this weakness? Indeed, you'll notice in verse 26 that he doesn't just assign weakness to the Roman Christians. Paul includes himself in this. 
Look what he writes there. He says, the Spirit helps us in what? Our weakness. The mighty Apostle Paul knows and experiences this human weakness, which is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And he also knew the profound lessons that accompanied these weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians 12, he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, that a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. God gave him a burden. He ordained this thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited because of the revelations that he was shown and because of the ministry that God had called him to. A severe mercy, the Puritans would call it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear ones, it is when we recognize and admit our personal weakness that we make room for the Spirit's life-transforming power in our lives. If we are not often heard and found repenting, admitting our weakness, asking for forgiveness from others, then we are far from what it means to be spiritually strong and mature. Some think that being spiritually strong and mature is to show no weakness, to admit no faults or weaknesses, but it's quite the opposite. This weakness, this weakness, it's something we all should confess. And when we do, we then can be filled with God's spirits and be strengthened and become more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, the spirit helps us in our weakness This is true in a general sense, but in verse 26, Paul refers to our weakness as it regards prayer. Look there with me. He writes, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Does this happen to you as often as it does to me? You go to pray for a particular person or situation, and you don't know what to pray. You're at a loss for words. Maybe there is a a challenging situation in your own life or with your family or with your children or with your neighbors, and you find yourself struggling to know exactly what to pray. Maybe a very elderly loved one is sick. Maybe they have cancer. Do you pray for their healing? Do you pray for the Lord to have mercy and to take them home to glory? Do you pray for them to have more time on earth, which probably means more suffering? Or do you pray that they would go to heaven and stop suffering? I remember having this struggle when praying for my own father. 
who is in the latter stages of stage four cancer, with the cancer riddling his body. I don't know what to pray, Lord. What do I pray? How about when you're frustrated at work? I know that probably has never happened to any of you. You're frustrated at work. You feel burdened. You're strung out. You're overwhelmed. You're not sure about those you work with. In fact, they annoy you. Do you pray for a new job or do you pray for the grace to persevere, to change your attitude? Do you pray for release from a tough situation or for the strength to carry on, to work hard and to love those around you? I don't know what to pray, Lord. What do I pray? You have a family member on the mission field. They are serving in an increasingly dangerous place. Do you merely pray for their protection and that they would carry on in ministry? Or do you pray that they would find a safer field of ministry? Do you pray that they should come home? What do you pray? How do you pray for your children? What do you pray for your children as it concerns the future? These are just a few examples of how our weakness, frailty, and ignorance fosters the inability to pray for what we ought. Moreover, there are times when suffering and anxiety and fiery trials leave us speechless. Sometimes we are heartbroken and don't know what we ought to pray for. But here's, dear ones, where the good news comes in. Here is where the good news comes in. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. Our prayers, our prayers aren't always right. They aren't always according to God's will. And we often don't know what to pray. But the Spirit... The Spirit of God, who is sent from heaven to earth to indwell God's people, who dwells in our hearts, knows exactly what to pray for on our behalf, and He does so with groanings too deep for words. This leads to our second point. The Spirit intercedes for us. Look with me again at our text. Verse 26. And 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, some uh, want to, uh, uh, they look to a verse in Galatians chapter 4 about how the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, and they say that the Spirit is groaning here. Really, we need to understand this as, as uh, the, the, the Christian groaning rather than the Spirit. But actually, it's the Spirit groaning. In fact, it says here, by way of emphasis, that the Spirit Himself groans. This is the spirit groaning. We're going to talk about what this means in a minute because it's mysterious. But what we have here is not a reiteration of what Paul has already said in the previous verses about the Christian groaning. Here the spirit is groaning. Now, when Paul begins with the word likewise here, he is indeed hearkening back to the previous verses. Some believe he's simply making a comparison to verse 25. 
that as hope helps us with patience, so the Spirit helps us in our weakness. But I tend to think that Paul, by using the word likewise here, is referring to all that he has written from verse 1 all the way through to verse 26, even as he has referred to the Spirit 20 times. So it's as if he's saying all the ways that the Spirit works in our lives, he does so in this way as well. He helps us in our weakness, especially as it concerns prayer. The Spirit makes intercession for us. Now, before we seek to understand what this means, we need to learn that we have not just one intercessor. I promise you, you will hear no better news than this today. You have not just one intercessor, but two. Who is your other intercessor? It's Christ. It's Christ. We read about this a little bit further down in the text in Romans 8, 33 and 34. Look there with me. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, what? Interceding for us. The devil may attempt to accuse and condemn us. The world may attempt to condemn and accuse us. But the word of God says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And he is interceding for us. Right now, dear believer, the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ is interceding for you. He is praying for you knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself, and He is praying for you. He is upholding you. He is representing you. He knows you by name. And He gave His life for you. And He is your advocate in heaven. He will not lose you because He loses not one for whom He died. The writer to the Hebrews punctuates this point in Hebrews 7 and verse 5, quote, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for his redeemed people. He pleads on our behalf in heaven. He is our surety and pledge. What confidence and encouragement this is meant to bring us this morning that Christ intercedes for us. And uh, that great Scottish uh, preacher in the 19th century in Dundee, Scotland, Robert Murray McShane, he said this, quote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. He is praying for you. I want to challenge you, dear believer, that next time you are in tears, working through a challenging situation in your own life or with another, remember this. Jesus is praying for you. He is upholding you. He is our high priest. He prays for us. But so does the Holy Spirit. 
so does the Holy Spirit. As if that was not enough, the Holy Spirit prays for us. John Murray puts it this way, quote, Christ is our intercessor in the court of heaven. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor in the theater of our own hearts. We have an intercessor in heaven, and we have an intercessor in our own hearts called the Holy Spirit. You may feel weak this morning, dear believer. You may feel inadequate. You may feel like you are hanging by a thread as you deal with life's trials and pressures. You may not know what to pray, but hear this. Christ does. The Spirit does. They know what to pray for you. They are praying for you. Christ in heaven is praying for you. The Holy Spirit in your heart is praying for you, and you are being held fast. Christ lives to make intercession for you. And if that's not enough, the Spirit intercedes for you as well. He is interceding for you in your heart with groanings too deep for words. Pastor, what does that mean? I don't really know. This is one of these lines where you you take a stab at what it means. And as one commentator said, you're creeping up to the edge of mystery here. And we take a stab at it. There are different views. Uh, One is that this is referring to speaking in tongues, which I categorically reject and see no basis for in this text. As we look at tongue speaking in the New Testament, we understand that this tongue speaking is something that people hear and it's interpreted. These are groanings too deep for words. There are no words here. There's silence. There are some, again, that believe that this is the groaning of the Christian. No, it says the Spirit himself groans. And so what's going on here? Well, we've already learned about creation's groaning in verse 22 and the Christian believer's groaning in verse 23. And here we come to the Spirit's groaning, which I believe refers to the intercession of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now hear hear this. An intercession that is both silent to our ears and incomprehensible to our minds, but fully understandable to God the Father. Fully understanding to God the Father. The Father searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit who intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God. Verse 27. Our Father hears and answers these prayers of the Spirit, which are always according to God's will. John Stott calls these prayers speechless prayers according to God's will. And just as the groaning of creation and the groaning of believers have within them a kind of yearning for something better, a yearning for all things to be made right, it is not wrong to say that the Spirit too longs or yearns or groans for the believer's glorification and all things to be made new. The Spirit intercedes for us in our hearts according to God's will, all with the aim to bring us to glory. Amen? What comfort this brings in the midst of trials. What consolation when the tears are flowing, when it's three in the morning and there's a knot in your heart and in your stomach. 
when you're feeling overwhelmed and burdened by what's happening in society, when you fear for your children, when you're feeling deeply your own weakness, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, knowing that the Spirit of God who dwells in your heart is praying for you. Perfect prayers according to the will of God for His glory and for our good. Interestingly, and I won't get into it because I don't want to mess things up for next week if the Lord hasn't come back yet, but look at verse 28. And I know all things work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. How can we confidently say that? Well, because our sovereign God has put His sovereign Son on His sovereign throne who bears the marks of his death on the cross for us and is praying for us and interceding for us. And he has placed his sovereign spirit in our heart that prays perfect prayers according to the will of God for his glory and for our ultimate good. That's how we can be confident that all things work together for good to those who are calling, called according to his purpose. Is there a mystery here? Well, of course there is. Is there sin in the world that brings lots of confusion and sadness, of course there is. But this is our ultimate trust, is in the Lord. This leads to our final point. The Father always says yes to the Spirit's prayers for us. Have you ever thought about what your life would be like if God said yes to all of your prayers? Think for a moment. If God said yes to all of your prayers, what things would be like? Well, if you're being honest it would be a disaster. And probably none of us would be in this room right now. Uh, We'd be doing something entirely uh, different. The fact is, we should all be thankful that God has said no to many of our requests and has said yes to the Spirit's prayers for us. Prayers that are perfectly in accordance with the will of God for our lives. So those who would be angry at God for not answering their heartfelt prayers about some matter need to remember that the Spirit is praying perfect prayers for them, praying according to God's will and all for their ultimate good. Remember Paul's prayer to be released from the thorn in the flesh? Paul thought it would be better to be released from this. Lord, how can this thorn in the flesh be good? I'm I'm busy for you. I'm active in ministry. I'm traveling. Whatever this thorn would be, some believe it was his eyesight that was diminishing. It could have been other things. We don't know. But Paul is thinking, Lord, please remove this thorn from me. Surely my life would be better without it. But God thought differently. He thought differently and wanted Paul to know and experience that his grace was sufficient in his weakness. And so God brings his severe mercies into our lives to humble us. He brought it into Paul's life that he would not be conceited. He brings it into our lives for all kinds of reasons. But he does so that we will rest in his grace and know that it is sufficient in our weakness. John Fesco explains that, quote, to assume that we know better than God, the creator of the cosmos, one whose wisdom, knowledge, power, and righteousness far exceeds our own, is folly and arrogance. 
to think that our prayers are actually better than the prayers of the Spirit that God is answering. But one might then ask, why pray? We were talking about this last night in family worship. Why pray then? The Spirit's got it covered. So does Jesus. I'm good. Let's cancel the prayer meeting. If prayers that are perfect according to God's will are being offered by Christ and by the Spirit on our behalf, if they are interceding for us, then why? Why pray? Why pray at all? One commentator said, because the Spirit doesn't pray in the hearts of those who do not pray. Christians pray. When Christians are born again, they call upon the name of the Lord. What is that? It's a prayer. They do not stop calling upon the name of the Lord because it's what Christians do. Christians pray. Praying is communion and fellowship with God. Praying is giving thanks. Praying is giving praise. Praying is pouring out our souls to God. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us and conforms us more and more to His will. We know that many of our prayers are answered in the negative. But we trust God with those negative answers, those no's. Because we know that there is a yes that's being said by the Father in response to the prayers of Christ for you and of the indwelling Holy Spirit for you. Take comfort in that, dear believer, in the midst of challenges. We pray because prayer is communion with God. We pray and cry out to God. But we express, as Jesus did in Gethsemane, Not my will, but yours be done. So verse 27 teaches us that God the Father who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit who intercedes for us according to God's will. Dear believer, God's grace, therefore, is bigger and grander and more abundant than we could ever imagine. The Lord has you and he will never let you go. I want to conclude with just a couple of words of encouragement. Number one, be encouraged. Though you are weak and often do not know what to pray, the indwelling Spirit intercedes for you in your heart, and Jesus intercedes for you in the courts of heaven. Be encouraged. He knows your name. He presents your name to the Father in love, and the Father accepts you and delights in you as His redeemed son or daughter. He is working His will out in your life. And as one commentator states, no wonder all things are working out for our good. The Spirit is effectually praying for us so that the will of God will be accomplished in our lives. We are not the product of chaos. We are sons and daughters of the living God, indwelt by the Spirit, prayed for by the Son and the Spirit, and on the way to glory. And day by day, we trust in God and we rest in His grace and in these prayers. Number two, be encouraged. God is more committed to your sanctification than you are. God is more committed to your sanctification than we are. He loves us enough to bring us into conformity to Christ 
even if that means at times placing us on a path of thorny trials and on the anvil of suffering, even if that means saying no to our prayers for ease and comfort, which we all pray. His grace is sufficient for you, dear believer, and his prayers are efficacious for you. Thirdly, be encouraged. Christ's intercession and the Spirit's intercession guarantee your eternal inheritance. God will not lose one of his lambs. And number four, be encouraged. The Holy Spirit's presence and intercession in your life provide help in your weakness and power for mortification of remaining indwelling sin and growing conformity to God's word. What Paul is teaching here in no way encourages spiritual laziness, prayerlessness, a lack of piety and obedience in the Christian life. In fact, quite the opposite. This grace, this amazing love that's being described in this, in this chapter and in these verses, it is meant to foster in us, to cultivate in us, to to spur us on and motivate us unto a life of faith and good works. Faith in Christ alone for our salvation and good works as the fruit of that salvation. And so we pray. And so we love our neighbor. And so we serve in the life of the church. And so we seek to be salt and light in the community. We seek to do mission. This doctrine of God's sovereignty and His work in our lives by His Son and Spirit doesn't cultivate Laziness, it's meant to cultivate gratitude and growing obedience to his word. Dear ones, when we are weak, he is strong in us and we become more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous and somewhat challenging text and we pray, Lord, that you would by your spirit apply it to us, that it would sink in and that we would grow in our understanding of communion with you, of our own weakness, of the Spirit's help in our weakness, and of the Spirit's intercession for us in our hearts, according to your will, for your glory, and for our eternal good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.